This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently. For more information or to sign up, go to thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, and then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 115 as we chat with award-winning copywriter, author, and professor of advertising, Luke Sullivan, about his best-selling book, Hey Whipple, Squeeze This, what it takes to make great advertising, what copywriters can do to get better creative briefs, and what it takes to get hired by an elite advertising agency. guys welcome Lou hello thanks for having me (laughs) we are thrilled to have you here because for a lot of different reasons but a lot of our guests in the past have focused on freelance copywriting and a lot of direct response copywriting and you kind of come from a different branch of advertising maybe the more familiar one to most people but we're thrilled to have you here and, and really interested in you know your story how did you become a copywriter well, let's see. Number one, I'm, I'm older than both you guys, probably older than all your listeners put together. <laughs> but old school is old school is fine because well, all kinds of reasons. I got into the business in the year of 1979, nine, 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 a long time ago. And back then it was all just, you know, print, outdoor, radio and TV. That was it. 1979, I was lucky enough to be hired by two Minneapolis greats, Tom McGilligan, who's a Hall of Fame copywriter at The One Show, and the late Ron Anderson, who asked anybody in Minneapolis, he was like godfather to the entire Minneapolis ad community. He just died several months ago, and everybody up there... It was sad day in Minneapolis advertising. They were the first of the regional agencies that rose in the 80s. There wasn't anything outside of New York back in the early 80s. It was just New York. Maybe there's Chicago, but the absolutely killer work was being done probably by, you know, Allen Gargano in New York and a handful of other Skelly McCabe slogans. These guys woke up the Minneapolis ad community and soon followed was Portland and Richmond and So I was lucky to be in the middle and be tutored by these two giants. So I had my first job at a place called Bozell and Jacobs, which is no longer around. I was there for five years. And then I, I had the bug. I had to try New York City. I hated it. Didn't like it was there for one year. And then I went to the Martin Agency in Richmond and worked for Mike Hughes, possibly the best single boss I ever, ever had. He too died about three years ago of lung cancer and he never smoked. Yeah, it's really sad. Then I came back to Minneapolis for 10 years at Fallon, which at the time was sort of the agency. There are kind of elite agencies that trade the crown of who's the absolutely hottest agency. Back then, Fallon was. And then I decided to try my hand at being a, well, I guess, owner and chief creative officer at an agency in Atlanta. I was there for five years. And then I spent my last eight years in the business at a wonderful agency in Austin, Texas called GSD&M. And that was the last time in the business. And I started teaching in 2011. Yeah, about, I've been teaching about eight years now. And I, I just love it. It's exactly the right thing for me to be doing. 
And I mean, as you talk through your career path, you didn't mention all of the awards that you won and, you know, the amazing things that you have done throughout your career. You were at Fallon at a time, like you said, it was kind of a magical time where it seemed like every single thing that the agency touched was gold and the work was awesome. And I wonder if you just kind of tell us a little bit about that experience, maybe the process of creating so much high quality advertising. Well, you know what? It's like, God, I'm going to probably have to go into a cliche world here to paint the picture because it was a magical time. It's when you have all the right things in the mix and the magic happens. And we had an agency in Fallon where the account people are to be credited with that. I mean, yes, they were fantastic A-plus creatives, but there was an expectation up and down the hallways from the top down to the very bottom that we were going to do nothing less than just absolutely brilliant work. And that requires agreement from top to bottom. It has to be absolute alignment on it. And I've worked at other agencies where we all wanted that, but there was not complete alignment from top to bottom. And so it never goes in quite into orbit like it did uh, at Fallon. There are other agencies like this today who they've just got all the right things. They've got the planners and the strategists and the great account people and great creative. And then, of course, you end up attracting a certain kind of client. The client is the last thing in the mix to require to get great work. And there are agencies working today, like, you know, I'll I'll mention uh, Wyden or, or Goodby, where clients go to them wanting that kind of work. They shouldn't go there if they want to just do their usual stuff. So pretty soon your agency itself becomes a brand and a client sort of self-select them. They won't come to you because they, for one reason or another, because they can see your work and they go, oh, that's not for me. So it is. It's a huge collection of everything being in absolute harmonic resonance in order to get just that sort of golden age feeling. So to have that brilliance, you know, you've hung out with so many brilliant creatives. What do they all share in common and to have that type of alignment? That was just nuts. I remember at Fallon days, I have other agencies to talk about, but starting with Fallon, I used to have this joke. When I went there after working at the Martin agency, I was just really scared because it was just so stinking good. And I used to have this joke that the office layout, if you looked at the, you know, the map of the creative floor, the office layout, I used to say, goes, it went genius, 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 Luke's office, genius, 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 genius. <laughs> and my friend Rod Kilpatrick, who worked there at the time, he said, no, 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 Luke, it goes, genius, genius, stairwell, genius, genius, <laughs> Luke's office, genius, genius, stairwell. And that's the way it felt. And when you are working with people better than you, you get better. You get better. And so You know, my students find this at school a little bit. All the kids come to Savannah College of Art and Design. Most of them were the creative kid in their high school. Like, you know, they were the, the kid who was the best illustrator. Oh, he did the yearbook. And so these creative kids, you know, the sort of top creative kids of their high school, arrive here maybe seeking an illustration degree or something, and they spend their first week on the dorm floors, and they see themselves surrounded by... I can't illustrate. These kids are killing me. They're great. It's the same thing. You surround yourself with people who are better than you, that, and it just sort of, you immerse yourself in it, and it rubs off on you. You just it can't fail to. And so that's what happens when you get into a good agency. You're going to just, you're going to, your level's going to rise. 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like even as a freelancer, I'm just thinking we need to surround ourselves with other talented freelancers to continue to rise. I think it could be challenging for some freelancers who are, you know, working out of their home offices and not in an agency setting. Well, then you're going to have to pull your inspiration from online and you know, studying right. the con archives, looking, of course, at the at the latest one show, subscribing to the CAs, you know, their December issue of advertising. I have a little list I hand out to my kids. I call it Fire Hydrant. And it is collected over a career's worth and added to most recently of just sites that are inspiring. And they're not always advertising sites. They're their maker's sites or something like that. And I call it fire hydrant because it's way more information than you can possibly take in. <laughs> but it's necessary to feed all that stuff into your brain because they become the molecular building blocks of ideas. You never know when it's going to be needed, but you need to be pouring into your head as fast and as voluminously as possible images, words, ideas constantly. If you don't have a hungry mind like that, if you don't have that curiosity, I don't think you're going to be the kind of writer I would want to hire. I love curious people whose whose brains are constantly inhaling information from a wide variety of sources. This makes you a deeper, more interesting person just, you know, for starters, but it also makes the variety of creative things you can come up with much more interesting, more robust, more widely wider, it's cooler. In any case, that's what I, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely want to talk more about your experience, you know, with your students. But before we leave, you know, your career track, I'm curious: is there a campaign that you're most proud of? The work that you know, if you had to hang one in the living room wall at your house for one client, what is it? And and yeah, tell us about creation of that. I wish it was a national TV campaign or something. When I tell my kids about my career. Not one of them knows me. It's not partly because they're just all so young. But even if you were an ad freak, you would not be able to point to some national campaign that I did. You know, it's a high, high visibility thing. I did get a number of awards and I was fairly well known. But you know what it was? It was I always got on base. I have very few home runs, grand slams. But I always got on base. I always delivered for clients in the agency. And I played on great teams. And that's all you need in order to just, you know, work your way up in the world and become somebody who's sought after, raise your prices, et cetera, et cetera. As to my favorite campaign of all time, like I was about to say, it's not a national. It's a little local radio campaign that I did, which you can hear online. It's on my sort of on my site, heywhipple.com. And it's up in the nav bars across the top. And I think it's labeled my favorite campaign. And it's a radio campaign for a tech school, you know, they teach you how to learn to be a plumber or a heating and air conditioning person. And it was a fantastic client who never, never didn't buy anything. He was just, just fantastic. And so I, I worked on that little client for maybe over the course of three years. And I just loved it. It was just, I'm very proud of it. There'd probably be about eight radio spots on that section in heywhipple.com for Dunwoody, the tech school in Minneapolis. I'm curious if you had a moment, I'm sure you did, where you were just like, hey, I'm really good at this. When that moment took place in your career, if you remember where you were and what had just happened. Again, I started under Tom McGilligan and Ron Anderson. There were other great writers there at the time, uh, some who went to Fallon, Dick Thomas, et cetera, et cetera. And I was absolutely green. 
I didn't go to ad school. I didn't go to college for this stuff. I studied psychology in college and came out with a BA in psychology, which qualified me to do diddly F and squat. And I went right into construction. That's perfect what you can do with a psychology <laughs> degree. But I, I got into production for for a newspaper that got me closer to advertising and publishing. And the moment I, moment I knew was while I was lucky enough to be mentored by Tom McGilligan and Ron Anderson at an agency in Minneapolis called Bozell and Jacobs. And I was green. I, I had the world's worst portfolio. I think they're still using the portfolio at poison control centers, you know, when they need to induce vomiting, they'll show like up my bank ad to some kid and say, just look at Luke's ad. I re- it was really very, very bad. But because I had gentle and loving mentors who were able to tell me this sucks for this reason, I just kept wanting to please these guys and just basic reward behaviorism. I just started to figure out which kind of things they liked. And so I was lucky that way. Not everybody has great teachers. Maybe by my third year in the business, they were starting to say, this is really good. So I worked on teeny little clients there, like Certix Liquor Store in Minneapolis. It's actually an old client that's been around since the 30s. And McGilligan and Anderson had done great work on it, but they handed me that little account because they were by then wanting to you know, play in the New York leagues. And so I did my first probably decent things on a, on a liquor store of all things in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's probably my first memory. So that's probably three years into my brilliant career. Yeah, that's, it's pretty amazing that it can take so long. And we definitely want to talk about your book. But I think in, in the book, you know, at one point in Hey Whipple, you talk about how uh, in order to get good, you have to follow, you know, certain people who are doing good work and almost copy it until it's so ingrained yes. in your brain. We talk a little bit about that process, would you? Well, I, I think the way I put it in one of the chapters is that Picasso knew how to draw a human figure that looked like a human figure before he started putting both eyes and the other side of the nose, you know, that you, you need to understand the rules. You need to understand just the rules before you start to break them. So that is what I had to learn is just how to write a decent headline, how to write a copy that is directly on strategy that flows, that moves from A to B to C and gets the hell out of the way, how to have an ad that has one boss in it and, and nothing else, how to, how to do the architecture of tension and release maybe in, in a radio commercial. These are just basic craft things that I was lucky enough to learn from some really great senior people in, at Bozell and Jacobs back in the 79, 80, and 81. Boy, I was lucky. And I remember, I remember Dick Thomas. Boy, I love that guy. He was a copywriter. And I brought in a radio spot that I typed up. I typed up. It's, he used to laugh at language like that. <laughs> and I brought it in. He had a fan going, you know, a personal fan that to cool him off in his office. And he said, in addition to the radio spot not being very good, it was too long. And so he shoved the script into his fan <laughs> to shave off half of it. He knew that I would laugh along with him, but it was just funny to see my radio script go into the blades of a fan to get cut in half. I had loving, funny, smart teachers. And boy, oh boy, when you can find somebody like that in your first years in the business, man, oh man, you're off to a great start. Yeah. Can we talk more about that? Because you've mentioned mentors a couple of times and a lot of you know, freelance copywriters are looking for mentors. They don't really know necessarily where to find them or what they should look for in a mentor. When's you know the best time to to sign on with a mentor? Can you just talk about how you were able to find them and what qualities your mentors had? 
I guess in this age of, of online, the, the simple things you can reach out, reach out to them. Not all creative people are mentor material. First of all, you have to have something to teach. You have to know your craft really well. But not all people are, I guess, as outer directed or as uh, helpful as you need in a mentor. So, so you may get a couple of phone calls not returned. But if you're studying, like I was just saying, if you're studying the industry and you're, you know, it's an ad week and ad age and you're in the con archives, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to start seeing somebody out there who's doing work that just rocks your world. That's, oh, that's the kind of stuff I want to do. And those are the people, the ones who are doing work that you just think I'll never be able to do. Those are the people you should go to. And the thing is, and, I'll, and I use my students as an example here, but it's really not about the school environment. It is, it is about growing confidence, et cetera. And so I tell my kids, you know, I have sophomores in my class right now, and none of them have books at all. But by the time they graduate, they have to have an absolutely stellar portfolio. How are you going to do that? And so I tell them, and it's part of one of our classes, is this reaching out to find mentors who will be kind enough to take a minute to occasionally look at maybe something you're working on. And generally, you're not going to find it in the CCO, the Chief Creative Officer. You're not going to find it in the CDs. What I recommend is finding an art director or maybe an associate creative director. Somebody's got some seniority and has been in the business for a while. Generally, I find that I know what I would do if somebody wrote to me and they have for years, I always take the time to help them, even the ones who I don't think they have any talent. And the reason why I do this is I'm paying it forward because Tom McGilligan and Ron Anderson did it for me. They took this sweaty little kid off the streets of Minneapolis wearing this shiny, wide 1978 tie, sitting there jittering in their on their office chair, and they took the time to help me. There are more people like that than there are people who are, you know, dirtballs. And you will find them. But opportunity doesn't knock. You have to go out and find them and just ask them. And it's a matter of saying, I'm not going to bombard you with emails, but could I send you an idea from time to time? And would you take a look at it? I've been doing that for years and I'm not special. There are other people who will do that. And so, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, go find them and they will serve you so well. And then of course, one day it's up to you to return the favor. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about what it takes to get hired at a big agency? It seems like it's a very different career track from, you know, what a lot of freelancers work on, you know, reaching out to particular clients and, you know, working on a project basis. What kind of work do people need? Like, how does that whole approach work? I don't think it's any different freelancers and working at a big agency. We offer a craft, a skill, whether it's UX or it's art direction or it's copywriting or it's creative tech. We offer a service. I do not believe there is a difference between I'm going to be a freelancer and I have to have this kind of book and I'm going to be in a general agency. I have to have that kind of book. You need to have a book where the outtake is, oh, my God, I want I want when I click on your book, I need to see at least not at least, but I love to see about nine campaigns. But you're going to be hired on the first three on the top row. I was just having lunch yesterday with the recruiter from Goodby, and we were in complete agreement, and I do cover it in the last chapter of my book, Hey Whipple, uh, uh, all about what, what recruiters are looking for in a book. Zach Canfield said yesterday at lunch, and I'd heard this, that, that Goodby, Jeff has often hired somebody on one piece. They will hire somebody on one 
but it has to be great peace. One oh my God moment in your portfolio is all it takes to open the door. When I sit down to look at books, and I've done it for many years, is you know I click open your thing, and I'm going to open the top thing in the left because we read left to right, and your first campaign, and I want that to leap out and land on my face, kind of like the face hugger from Alien. I want your idea to leap out of the computer and fasten itself onto my face and make me go, oh, my God. I think it should probably be 2D because recruiters can look at work extremely quickly, can assess talent extremely quickly. And I can decide if I want to go to the second campaign in probably 10 seconds. If you get me to open the next campaign, you're doing really well. You're doing really well. I liked what I see in the first one, whether it's art direction or copywriting. I can tell instantly that you have talent. Now I want to see if you can think and take this talent onto another client, maybe into other media. If I open your third thing, I'm going to put you on a short list. And then I'm going to go back into the big pile of URLs that I'm combing through to find possible people to fly in for an interview. So to get in that short list, it has to be absolutely fast and clear. I don't want you to make me figure out what your damn creative is. I want it to leap out exactly like it does in the egg scene in the first Alien movie. <laughs> Remember the guy leans over that egg and that face ever leaps out? That it's is the metaphor. Oh my gosh, it's been a while since I saw that. Yeah. Well, it's exactly the right metaphor. I want your idea to be absolutely fast and clear. I want it to attack the viewer, be aggressively brilliant. And make me go, oh, my God, I have to see what the next campaign is. You really only need to get to the third one and have the recruiter nodding their head saying, this person has some talent to get on their short list. And then after I've done that, after I've gone through, generally, I remember sitting down, usually during lunch when I have time to, to do overhead stuff like this, uh, non-billable stuff, you know, hiring, is I would go through 30 of these, you know, little blue lines on my computer, click check them, and I'll probably end up with four, five shortlists. Then I come back to that shortlist. Now I'm going to dive a little deeper. I'm going to go into the fourth, fifth, or sixth campaign. And it's kind of like how they judge award shows. We respond to work that just is highly crafted. But then we'll start to go in to look for the thinking and how can they take this show on the road in terms of media? How can they bring it to life in the world in really cool and unexpected ways? So again, the biggest thing is that this is the most of my kids fail on an assignment these days because their ideas are not fast or clear enough. They may well be creative, but I don't care if it's creative. I need it to be extremely fast. I heard a recruiter once say, make me fall in love in three seconds. And they're not exaggerating. If you've ever been to a career fair, anybody been to a career fair, our career fair at SCAD, the kids go down and, you know, Drogophile will show up and Hill Holiday or Crispin, and they'll get a chance to see these recruiters click through their book, and it is in 60 seconds. 60 seconds, they'll say, this is pretty cool. Give me your card. We'll put you on our short list. It's that fast. So that is no different to me for somebody wanting to be a freelancer, selling their craft directly to a client, or to get into a large agency. I need to see that you have the skills in your craft, copywriting or art direction. And I need to see that you can think, and I want to see it quickly, and I want to be blown away by it. 
Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the Copywriter Underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership? So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community, and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice, again, on those three areas, copywriting, marketing, and mindset, things that you can mark up and you know tear out, put them in your files, save them for whatever, and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Carol, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground? So I, I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those. So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program. So to build upon that from your teaching experience and mentoring students, where else do you see copywriters fall short in their thinking or just the career decisions they make? Well, for copywriters, I'll say this. A lot of places are training art directors to be the one who does all the making. And the copywriter just sort of is like the lazy dad in a sitcom, just <laughs> does the work, just does the words and, you know, Page me at the pool when you need the copy written. And what I want and what we teach is I want a copywriter simply to be a creative person. I want them to be able to concept. And that means concept visually and also not just concept, but to be able to make things. The most impressive kids these days, the ones who are getting their dream jobs directly out of my college, are the ones, copywriters and art directors, who not only can have a really great idea, but then they can make it. Maybe it's a website. They have to code it. I want copywriters who can code. We had one kid, copywriter, went to DDB out in San Fran. It's a small shop out there. And he was a copywriter but because he was one of our kids. He knew how to make stuff. He knew how to do a really nice After Effects video. When he got out there the first week, they suddenly somebody was sick or somebody was gone and they needed to do something for a pitch. And our kid sat down, copywriter, and was able to make a pitch video on After Effects. We're way past the old, remember the, the image of, oh, I'm just an idea guy. You know, you do the finger guns. The idea guy is dead. Idea guys that I can get ideas anywhere. I need somebody who can aggressively come up with lots of ideas and then walk in the door and show me a beta so they can code it or make it. That is what I think is going to be the game in the coming years. It's no longer, I can write, look at these headlines. Oh, I can write, look at this copy. They're calling more and more hybrid creatives. I want somebody who can come in the room and start to solve problems in any number of ways and doesn't have to wait around for somebody to come help them make their idea come to life so they can show it and sell it to a client. That means understanding Adobe Creative Suite, every one of them. I would tell every copywriter out there, just pay the money for every Linda course you can and learn how to use this stuff. Wow. 
So while we're talking about, you know, ideas and being able to execute on ideas, maybe we could take a step back and talk about where ideas come from. What's your process for getting really great ideas, Luke? Well, my process, for the most part, like a lot of other people's, and it's the one I recommend students to do, is that you, I generally start off, I draw this sort of three circles. And in the circles, it says, what do we have that the customer wants that the competition isn't giving them. It's sort of my way to be an internal account executive to sit down and figure out what is the right thing to say, to do. What do we have? What does our product have that customers want that the competition isn't giving them? So, you know, it's AE school 101 is that you have to have a really good understanding of the customer, a really good understanding of your competition, their strengths and weaknesses in order to get to that value proposition that, okay, so that stuff's often figured out for you by your client or by the agency so now, okay, I'm sitting down, I've got my, uh, my art director with me, and I'm going to start to do ideas. Well, here's one of the first things I do. I ask this question, what is the truest thing I can say about this product, brand, category, or customer? The truest thing, the truest thing. It's very rarely in the brief. Clients generally do not deal with truth. They deal with facts, and facts are boring. They'll sit down and they'll think, well, you know, I have to sell this thing. And so the research says, oh, there's vitamin D and calcium in here. And so they start selling milk with milk means stronger bones. And nobody in the whole stinking world gives a, a flying F about stronger bones. It's just BS. It's not the truth. When Goodby sat down to do the milk thing, they sat down and what did the truth and what they went into was this deprivation strategy is that people don't buy milk for stronger bones, milk goes with things. And so you get to this truth, milk goes with things, and that became the Got Milk campaign from Goodby in the, in the 90s. So I'm, I'll, I'll start off with that. What is the truest thing I can say? And clients will rarely put it in the brief. Alex Boguski used to say, with the first meeting with a client, what is the elephant in the room? What is the real problem? What is the real problem? Not, oh, this thing has vitamins D. That led them to Domino's. Domino's, their real problem was your product sucks. And I don't care how fast you get it to me, 30 minutes or it's free, it sucks. And so they started there. Probably would have scared most clients away, but they had to remake that thing. So what is the truest thing in the uh, uh, about the product? The next thing I do is... I say find and leverage the central conflicts in your product, category, brand, or customer. Central conflicts. And by that, I mean what this helps do, helps me do, is get to story. All drama is conflict. All storytelling is conflict. Every movie you've ever seen, every comic book, every fairy tale has conflict at its core. Storytelling is conflict. And so I look at advertising the same way. And conflict comes from opposing energies. So I sit down and I look deep into my category, my product, my customer's life, and I look for these opposing energies because those are going to be the rudiments of story. And I start banging these things together to see if I can get sparks going, if I can blow on those little sparks and blow it into the flame of narrative. And I think it's a really great shortcut to getting to good ideas by looking at it in terms of find the truest thing you can say and then start looking for conflicts based around that truth and start banging those things together. You're basically looking for a protagonist and an antagonist. And that's where a story starts, whether it's, you know, Crest Toothpaste and now well, who's the villain? Who's the bad guy? Is it the dentist? Is it that little 
thing that they use in your teeth? Is it tooth decay? Is it yellow teeth? Is it bad breath? When you start to line up these opposing energies, the possibilities of narrative rise to the top. And so that's another thing I do, truth and conflict. All right. So I'm thinking about lifestyle design and what trends you may have noticed over the years with creative professionals, how they structure their day, their weeks for optimal creativity. That's a really good question. And what I may say may not apply to you because creative processes are different for everyone. What I see as successful, what I see in my own career and in the success of my students is Well, I guess it's reflected in this quote somebody from Saatchi once said, have a disciplined eye and a wild mind. Another way I heard it put, it was, you know, dream like an Irishman, but build the trains like a German. It's discipline and wild dorm room creativity that really makes for the best kind of creative because they're able to get really out their ideas, but they're living a kind of life where they can then take these ideas and get them on paper and put them in their best Sunday clothes and get them to the client over and over and over again. Another way to put that is, I'm just pulling these these like sayings sewn on the pillows, you know, your grandma's house, sayings sewn in the pillows at the lounge outside of Crispin. One I like is, freed minds can create, trained minds can execute. What I need is to have this mixture of a very lithe and flexible mind. But if you're all poet, you're just not going to be able to deliver. Steve Jobs said, you have to ship on time. I don't care how cool your product is, you have to ship on time. And so I look for, I see, I don't, it's a matter of looking for, I see students who have great promise, but sometimes these very students who have great promise, I just see really cool ideas on their, on their sketchboards, but they also miss a class or show up late or didn't listen to the instructions. And because of that, they will likely fail in the long run in the real world because you do have to show up in time. You do have to listen to the instructions. You do have to deliver on the brief. You have to do that. But what we're paying you for is for the poetry. So I like in Hey Whipple, I think it's like you have two voices up there in your head. One is the poet who's just, you know, it's just crazy and stays out too late. And the other one is this OCD person who just wants to get all the measurements right and da, 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 da. Between the two of those things in your head, you have to deliver. And when they both have a seat at the table in your head, you are going to beat all the sloppy geniuses out there. I'd rather have a determined, hardworking kid who has discipline and can hand me ideas over and over and over versus hiring a genius who's unstable, isn't, I can't depend on them. Yes, they every once in a while have a hand in, you know, a Rembrandt, but in the business, I can't wait for that. I can't bet on the come and hope that this person's going to turn it in. I'd rather have a lesser talent with a great work ethic because I know that they can improve and they will give me the things I need to, you know, solve my client problems. And they're worth training because you will see the return on your investment of time is that they're just going to get better and better. People who don't have this discipline, a work ethic, I can't use. They may be fun to watch for an hour or two. Wow, it's like 4th of July fireworks. Ooh, that was cool. Ooh, that was cool. But when push gets to shove in the agency world, which is full of deadlines and a lot of money on the line, or or the freelance world, you have to deliver on time. You have to deliver on time. So I love this mix of wild creativity and a disciplined mind. That's it. 
Luke, I want to ask about creative briefs. I know this is something that you teach about in the industry. And we've mentioned a couple of times, you said that that hard truth about the product or the service is never in the brief. And so I'm wondering what we as copywriters and creatives can do to make sure that we get really good creative briefs so that we can do our best work. Well, number one is, unfortunately, we are not in charge of the creative briefs. In school, we get to make up our own. And so that's different. As a copywriter and agency, the briefs are going to be slid across to you. And it's not likely you'll even be able to have input in those briefs until you've been at the agency sometime and you've worked your way up and you're able to work your way upstream into the whole process so you can get near where the briefs are being forged. I happen to think that most briefs suck. And it doesn't mean that I think most brief writers suck. I just think there's this way that we're supposed to write briefs that we've been doing for years and years. It's been unexamined. And I decided one day at the urging of sort of an agent of mine to tackle a how to write a brief sort of master class. And I've always thought it was way outside of my pay grade. I'm not an expert in this, but I finally did it. And I was surprised at the result because I managed to figure something out that I wish I'd had in my whole career. Most of the time, briefs, what they do is they slide a, a statement across the table and expect you to work from that. And most of the time, that single key thought is a solution. It's a solution. You need to say this, fresh food means better health. And so you sit back and you go, fresh food means better health. We can do a campaign on that, right? It's five words. It's fairly clear. But when you, and this happened to me, we leaned back and tried to work with this brief with the key message, fresh food means better health. And we just sat there. We stared at the thing and it stared back at us. We poked it with a stick. It didn't move. It was just gray and inert. It's not a brief. What it is, it's not a problem. And I need a problem because only problems cause creativity to kick in. When you have fresh food means better health as your brief, it's a solution. They're handing you the solution. You're ha they're handing you the solution. They don't need you. If this is your solution, well, then just execute that. What I prefer, what I suggest, as, as many other people, I'm not the only person who's ever figured this out, is I like to have you slide a problem across the table to me, a problem in the form of a question. And it's best when the question cannot be answered except creatively. Dan Wyden once said, the best assignments are in trying to figure out what question we want to ask, not what's the answer to the question. So he said, a good assignment is always a question. The best brief is a well-defined question. And the question always fulfills two criteria. You don't know the answer to this question, but the question comes out of the heart of the issue you're dealing with. There has to be an unresolved issue there. What is the thing we can't quite solve? And so at the heart of what I think is a great brief is you need to formulate the core of your proposition as an exciting question and one that can only be answered creatively. When you have a solution there, fresh food means better health, what do you do with that? It's already been answered for. There's your solution. It's like going into the, to the movie theater at the very end of the movie where the cowboy's riding off into the sunset. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is up front with the conflict. All right, Luke, I would love to hear if you, okay, let's imagine this. You're starting your career in 2018. You just graduated from school. What advice would you give to yourself? What would you focus on? I would shut up and listen more. I was a mess. I was I was just a hot mess <laughs> and I thought I knew everything and and you know what? I had I was I was smart enough to know what was crap and I was smart enough to know that 
80% of advertising isn't very good, but I wasn't smart enough to do that the other 20% yet. I just knew who the bad guys were and I didn't listen enough. And I was surrounded with incredible teachers. It's lucky that I was surrounded by incredible teachers. And it's lucky, I'm lucky I listened enough to them as I did. But I wish I'd listened more, especially to people I thought I disagreed with. I I wish I had taken a deep breath and not tilted at so many windmills and fought every damn battle that presented itself to me. I would have had lower blood pressure. I would have been happier. And I would have improved faster had I just listened. And by listening, I don't mean just shutting up and listening to your mentor, but by studying, 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 filling your head with all the stuff you can. I was too much of the lone wolf kind of creative. Oh, I can do all this. Uh, Just stand back. I'll solve this. I wished I had been more collaborative, less sure of myself, and just soaked it in. Instead of insisting that I was right and, oh, this client's stupid if they don't do that. They're stupid. They're stupid. I wasted too many years doing that. It still happens today. It's, It's human nature. But that's what I wished I had done differently. I think that's what I need to needlepoint onto my cushion on my couch. Just, just shut up and listen more. I think that's <laughs> great advice. So, Luke, I want to ask about your book. You wrote an amazing book. I mean, it's been 20 years. So 1998, I think, is the date on my copy. Right. And I've had it on my shelf ever since. I've read it a couple of times. And, uh, you know, people talk about it in the same you know phrases or same sentences as Ogilvy's books. And it's kind of become this textbook for advertising, certainly for uh, image or brand advertising. If you were writing that book today, what would be different in it? Well, this is the fifth edition is out now. So thank you, number one, for those kind words. And I'm glad you had the first edition, 1998. And that was, you know, the web wasn't even really up by then. And so because it sold well enough, it's used in colleges worldwide. I've been lucky enough to have to rewrite new editions. Interestingly, I think in the third edition, I had a whole chapter on direct marketing that I had to cut out in the fourth edition because the the web was getting too big, too important, and I needed room. But I had that in there. The fifth edition is one where I finally invited a co-author to join me. Deal was, is that over the over all these years, even when it was in the business and when I was out, if I'm going to be teaching this stuff, I need to be in command of it. And so I had to stay as current as I could, as hip as the kids are, understanding the latest social emerging media, all that stuff, and to the fourth edition, I did it by myself. Finally, two years ago, when the last one came out, I just decided, you know what? I'm kind of up to date, but I'm not an expert in this. I know my limitations. And so I invited a guy named Edward Boches, who was a top dog at Mullen, which is a very good agency in Boston, and asked him, would you address all the new stuff, the emerging media, social, et cetera, interactive in the book, write your own chapters? And he did. So the fifth edition has the improvement of having another brain in the room who knows his stuff. The fifth edition is so, so much more complete and better than that first edition. I wrote the one in 1998 because I just didn't see any really good books out there, including Ogilvy on advertising and that, that a student could just grab this book and learn most everything they need in order to start creating a portfolio and get into the business. So I just started writing that. What it came out of was a speech I gave to the Portfolio Center in 1996, I think. I I gave a speech. In that speech, I decided instead of just being another agency person coming in, here's our reel, aren't we cool? 
and then answering some questions, I thought, is there something I can give these kids, something they can use right after this stupid speech is over? And so I just made this little modular thing with single piece of advice, single piece of advice, single piece of advice. And months later, I heard I'd left that speech behind and I heard that they turned all those things into a screensaver. Somebody turned it into a screensaver. And I saw, wow, there's this demand for it. That's when I decided to sit down and try to write this book. It took me a long time, but I stand by it because it's improved. With every edition, it's improved. And I do think it's still one of the very best books for somebody to pick up to understand what it is we really do in this business and what is gonna, what you have to bring to the table in order to succeed in it. It sounds to me like I just need to come and go out and pick up a fifth <laughs> edition and uh, yeah, update myself. <laughs> yeah, the sixth edition is I'm cooking it now. And I'm going to probably peel back. It's gotten too fat for my money. It's I've got a copyright over here. It's it's getting into the what is it? 424 pages. It's getting a little fat, and I may have to peel some stuff back. What I like to do is I like also to update the examples of work in the book that illustrates whatever principles we're talking about, so that it is fresh as possible. But you know what? It's paper, so anything you put on paper just ages so quickly. In this business in particular, it's hard to have a paper, you know, a papyrus-based platform that is as cutting edge as it should be, but you know, that's that's the way it is. That's that's true. And I mean, one of the charming things about that first edition is the advertising. It's a little dated, you know, it's it's the stuff that was happening in the eighties and nineties, but it's kind of fun to look back, you know, and and see where we've come from. So I guess what we should say is just, you know, hit the used bookstore and get all of the editions so you can see all of right. the stuff that's there. Well, yeah, the deal is also even the dated stuff, you can learn from a one-show annual work done for BMW by, you know, Almirati and Pierce in the 80s. However old school it may be, the crafts are evident, the crafts of copywriting and the crafts of art direction, which are portable. And they go from medium to medium. And understanding information architecture, looking at a single 2D print ad, the humble little 2D print ad has everything we need in order to first practice the crafts of art direction and copywriting. And so old school, fine. It is old school, but the lessons are there just the same. All right, Luke, I know we're out of time with you. We have so many questions for you, but before we wrap, can you just share a little bit about what you're most excited about right now? If you're working on any new projects you want to share or promote, where can we find you? I have another book that took me 18 years to write. And it's a memoir. They say write about what you know. And so I wrote about advertising. And then I wrote about growing up in an insane alcoholic household. And that book is called 30 Rooms to Hide In, Addiction, Insanity, and Rock and Roll in the Shadow of the Mayo yeah. Clinic. I grew up a doctor's kid. I had such high hopes for that. But that book is, has begun its long march into complete obscurity. But I stand by it because it's the single finest creative piece I've ever made. I like I just I still look at it and I say I can't change a word. That's on Amazon. One day, I hope to produce something a little bit like what you guys are doing, an online course, probably of three videos of how to put together a book that gets you a job in advertising. I can't do it right now because it competes with my contract with the school, and I, I owe that to my students now. But when I finally start to hang it up, I think I'll create something like that so kids who can't afford college can still have a, an unfair start in this business. That's about it. I've got another webinar coming up. Anybody can friend me on Facebook. I friend everybody. And that way you can see if I have any webinars coming up. Sounds good. All right. I'm friending you today. It's cool. Happening. Any, any old person, I like it. It's just another network and uh, happy to have you. 
All right. Thank you, Luke. This has been just so inspiring and helpful too. I just have so many takeaways from our conversation that I can integrate into my own business. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing. I'm flattered, you guys. Appeals to my ego. Hey, somebody's <laughs> asking me something. Well, I'll tell them things then. Give me that microphone. Great. Well, we hope we can have you back again soon. Thanks, Luke. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.